Welcome once again to another fantastic episode of the Business Creators Radio Show. We help business creators like you win at the game of business and marketing so you can thrive from your intersection of your brilliance and your passion and make a difference for your community, market, and audience. Please take a moment and visit our website, www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com. You'll find hundreds of episodes covering a breadth and depth of topics relevant to you as a business creator and links to subscribe via your favorite network so you get fresh episodes delivered straight to you. And now, here's today's episode. Let's get started. My name is Adam Homie. I am your host, and I am honored by your wise decision to tune in and invest in yourself today. The Business Creators Radio Show is a from-the-field podcast, which means we go where you go to have those mastermind encounters, those aha moments. So occasionally you may hear a little bit of ambient noise because I may be in a public place when I do these. Right now I'm on the couch in my sumptuous Las Vegas apartment here in the hottest city in America, surrounded by my feline supervisors who uh, make frequent appearances on my various media. We do not have a elaborate $25,000 Hollywood studio because that is typically not where the magic happens. The magic happens is when you have the experiences and you open yourself to the abundance of the message and the meaning. So what we're going to cover today, and this is, oh, this is a hot topic, and I have been on the edge of my seat for this one for more than a minute and a half. It's about psychological safety <laughs> and how to communicate trust and keep your team satisfied instead of burning them out. Look, it doesn't matter if you are in a corporate environment and these are your direct reports. It doesn't matter if you're the CEO and we're talking about your C-suite. It doesn't matter if you uh, are the leader of a virtual team, synchronous or asynchronous, whatever it is, this matters psychological safety and to take us down this path somebody who i've been looking to engage with for more than a minute and a half more than a minute and 45 seconds where i'm so glad our schedules finally aligned seeing as we're in different parts of the world we have for you Teresa mitrovic and she is the founder of oro collective which we'll discover more about, as well as a consultant, coach, course creator, and author specializing in performance, psychological safety, and trust. Now, the rest of the stuff in the bio, I'm not going to read it off. I'm going to let her tell the story, except for the part where she's now based in Melbourne with her husband and her dog. She works internationally and virtually connecting and coaching top executives from companies like Barclays, Hasbro, Disney, Accenture, and every other bank that I owe credit card balances to. So, Teresa Mitrovic, welcome aboard. So great to have you here. The weather's fine. Come on in. <laughs> Thanks, Adam. Thanks for having me. Okay. So, before we dive in, and this psychological safety thing, and you've warned me that this mm -hmm. is a match that once it gets lit, could set off a conflagration. So I'm going to give you a lot of space over the course of our time together here to expound on things. I'll get you started, and I know you're going to run with it. Before we do mm -hmm. that, I read off a piece of your official bio. I was afraid to say it all because I knew that I would not be worthy to be in your presence, even though this is my show. So let <laughs> me ask you to tell us in your own words a bit about your journey and what's brought you to where you are today, serving business creators from your intersection of your brilliance and your passion. 
Okay. Wow. Uh, where to start? So I actually, um, I've been, I've been, I've been running my own business for the last ten years. So I founded this uh, leadership learning consultancy in London in 2011. But the that kind of the passion had been ignited uh, almost a decade prior to that when I went through a coaching as manager course, which I was incredibly reluctant to attend, um, and because I, I really didn't think I needed it. I was a t- your typical A-type manager in a corporate career. So I was head of marketing at Hasbro in New Zealand. And everything was just, as far as I was concerned, really great. You know, we were hitting our targets. Yes, we were working hard, working long hours, but I thought I had it nailed. Um, our general manager insisted that the entire senior management team, or senior leadership team, did this coaching as manager course. And I literally, it was a three-day off-site course, and I was so reluctant. I was you know, virtually kicking and screaming to attend it. Um, And the only reason I went and the only reason that I applied any of it when I returned is because I really respected my manager. So there's a lesson there in how far your team members will go for you and they respect you as as a leader, right? But but what I learned from practicing some of these things that were, to my mind, incredibly pedestrian was that um, not only did team morale improve and the quality and, and, um, consistency of their work improved, but we tripled our profit as well. And that started happening pretty quickly. Like within the first 30 days, that started to happen. And we had nine months to run until the end of our financial year, which was when we realized that we were actually, we were so far ahead of our targets. It was just, you know, we, we blew everyone's socks off. Um, and what really stuck out to me wasn't just the results that we were getting for the business or the, or the results that we were experiencing as human beings sharing our work days together, but it was that um, my my team were each spending on average 90 minutes less at work every day. And I was spending at least two hours less every day on my job, which for me at the time I was a solo parent um, and I had to travel a lot internationally for work as well. So working a shorter day and tripling our bottom line was that that's something I thought more people needed to, to learn about. So that was when the seed got planted. You know, if someone, if someone who's as driven and determined as I am, can be as reluctant to go on a course that has this kind of impact, then we need to make these courses more relevant and more attuned to more people like me, because it's people like me who often set the bars high and drive people really hard. And, and we can end up creating some collateral damage along, you know, along the way. So we've got to be careful of that. So, um, so that was kind of, that's when the idea came to me that at some point I would exit the entertainment business and, um, and get into sharing this with other people. But of course I had a son to raise and a mortgage to pay. So I promised yeah. myself that, you know, I'd take care of business. I'd take care of my own, you know, family life first. And when I had the luxury of time, then I would retrain. And as it worked out, I, ended, I was working in London at that point, um, retrained, got straight into this. And when I was working in London, uh, it, you know, it, I was always talking about high-performing teams and high-performing leadership. And I always snuck. Uh, psychological safety and trust in under the radar, you know, because um, that was, you know, we're talking 2011, 2012, everyone was talking about uh, stress being a an employee's problem, not an employer's problem. And so people were still, ta- you know, talking about these soft skills and the human experience as being something that really wasn't, um, it, it just wasn't part of what leaders had to worry about. That was something that individuals uh, had a responsibility for, and they were left on their own, largely left on their own to deal with it. Um, 
so whilst I was living in London, I always kind of led with performance and psych, safety and trust were on the coattails of, of all of our work. Um, and as soon as I moved down to New Zealand, uh, which I did in 2016, I spent two and a half years there where we talked more about uh, how you create this high trust culture. So I was able to talk about it more, more, you know, more openly, uh, more frankly. And then the great gift, if I can say it was a gift, of, um, of the pandemic was I went from having this in-person business where we did all of our work with leaders, leadership teams, and leaders and groups, and we took it online. So we worked really hard. I worked really hard to make sure that everything that we were doing, the results that we were getting for clients, we were able to translate into an online environment so we could give them the same kind of experience virtually as they would have got if they were in the room with us. Wow, that so, is yeah. quite a story. And it makes a great, great segue here. Uh, particularly, you're talking about the changes and the evolutions. And psychological safety is very important. I know what it feels like to be in work environments and not only did not have psychological safety, but were geared to proactively remove it and keep people on edge. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. then they, uh, I'll tell you, when I uh, first graduated from my undergrad, I got the idea that one of the industries I wanted to try out was the temporary staffing industry, working as a recruiter. And I had, mm -hmm. I got an interview with this one company. Uh, not only did uh, the interviewer who would turn out to be my supervisor show up 30 minutes late and then say, oh, well, I don't really go by my calendar. Uh, and then have her proceed in, into a lecture about punctuality. But I was told mm -hmm. that uh, for a company that was 20 years old, and I want you to mm -hmm. listen to this closely, 20 years old, uh, most of the people who ran the competing staffing agencies got their start working for this company. In fact, a few of them said, I see you don't really have an experience. So if this one company makes you an offer, take it. If you manage to survive a year, give me a call back. If I room, I'll hire you. So wow. I was like, okay, I'm in the door here. So mm. you're already seeing I'm starting to lay, put layers of groundwork here. Here's mm -hmm. the catcher. So I said, company in business 20 years, most of the competition actually got their start working there. They have 15 employees. They told me they have 15 employees. And they told mm -hmm. me that one of the perks of working there was that once I completed my first full calendar year working there, I would get my name added to the list of names on the front door. So I should have stopped and thought, wait a minute, who are these names on the front door? The owner, who is this new boss's mind, uh, her daddy, his mm -hmm. golfing buddy, who's his business partner, and the administrative assistant. Mm. But this is a recruiting firm, which means they have, they're supposed to have salespeople, they're supposed to have coordinators. None of these people have been here a year. See, I overlooked all that stuff mm. because I just wanted in. Yeah. And uh, mm -hmm. I did not think at the time about how psychologically unsafe that place was. It was cathartic to me 20 years later to be featured in Journeys to Success, the Millennial Edition, and tell the story about how my experience there, uh, especially the part where I was forced to resign, April 27, 2000, I celebrate that as literally my second birthday. Mm. Like, I actually I actually have cake done for it. <laughs> and the, re the, re the, re yeah. Yeah, the reasons why, the reasons why, 
coming through this uh, period of, of a lack of psychological safety is I discovered two things. Number one, pretty much everything they tell you that's a paradigm is either a lie or just wrong. And most importantly, out of all those, that the whole idea that if you end up losing a job without having another job already lined up, that you're basically cooked, turned out not to mm-hmm. be the case. April the, thir- April the 27th, 2000 was a Thursday. By the following Monday, I was actually on a temp assignment with one of their competitors. Like, I, hey, they let me go on Thursday, April 27th, Friday, April 28th. I was making calls saying, all right, I made eight months and 16 days. Got anything for me? And one of them, and one of them said, you know, um, we don't have a coordinator position right now, but while you're interviewing, would you like to go do a temp assignment for us? And it was twice what I was really? making as a recruiter. So of course yeah. I said, yes. Yeah. So with, they, all, they, with, all so packed, with all that stuff I packed in there about psychological mm-hmm. safety and the lack thereof, how common is all this kind of stuff? Maybe not all of it in one package, but maybe bits and pieces here and there. You know, I think, I think it's a really good question. And I think it's more common than any of us would believe or hope to believe is possible. And I think that's one of the things that, um, that's that been so uncomfortable about this ho- the whole last few years we've been through is that you start to realize how much of what we've been putting up with is actually untenable for the human experience. So um, if you, I say this to leaders all the time, if you, if you have a staff member who you, who is competent, who is committed and who you can trust, then everything else is about clearing the path so that they can be as successful in their role as possible so that they can deliver value for themselves, for their own career uh, trajectory and in their own career growth, but also add value to the team, add value to you as a leader and add value to the organization. Because all of us, whether we're nonprofit or profit generating organizations, we are all in the business of creating value for the people who we work with and for, right? Yeah. So how do we keep that value chain um, strong, healthy and cyclical? And the problem that we've been experiencing, and I think millennials have done a great job of kind of bucking the trend and kind of pushing against this is we've been putting up with a lot of management practices that were created in the industrial revolution. And we're going through a knowledge economy revolution. We're still going uh-huh. through a knowledge economy revolution because although, and, and you know, one of my greatest hopes when the pandemic hit was that it would cause this seismic systemic shift in how leaders led their teams. But we kind of, I feel like we went part way when everyone went into, into lockdowns and had to work remotely from home. We went part way. We did we, you know, organizations who had said you can't work from home, leaders who said we can't manage our teams at home, everybody was forced to trans- create transformational change in their businesses in terms of how they led, how they operated, how they monitored, how they, how they set goals, how they man- monitored, managed, you know, execution of those goals. All of that was done in weeks, not, not years. And if you think about how long those transformations would have taken pre-2020, we're talking years in the planning uh-huh. and execution. We did it in weeks which was phenomenal. But what we're seeing right now with this whole kind of argy-bargy around how do we get people back to work? And let's be clear, we're not getting people back to work. We're getting people back into the office because people have been working. They have been been working, yes. (laughs) Right? Yeah. So, hey, so that's one of the fastest ways you can you can disconnect from people and start to actually create tension and and, um, and start to breach trust with people is to talk about coming back to work as opposed to being specific and saying coming back to the office because people 
you, you need to acknowledge people have been working and in, in a lot of circumstances, people have been working much harder because of the distractions that they might be facing at work or the other um, pressures that are put on them uh, by virtue of the continually changing environment that we're in, where we have to continually adapt to whether the kids are going to be home, whether people are ill, whether we have to isolate. So we had this opportunity with, with COVID to really change up the way that we were be, uh, behaving and acting and creating our relation, you know, our, our performance expectations with our team. We had this amazing opportunity, once in a lifetime opportunity to say, okay, guys, let's wipe the slate clean. What do you need? What do we need as an organization to be successful, to continue to innovate, remain relevant, stay ahead of the game? And what do we need? So what do we need in terms of output? What do we need in terms of experience for us and for the people that we work with and serve? And what do you guys need from me as a leader to help make that possible for you? Oh, oh I've, been, I've been chomping at the bit here, but <laughs> finish your thought and then I am going to dive in. <laughs> well, here's, here's the beauty of, of just asking those questions. So changing your thinking and asking those questions is you're not coming from a place of this is what we've always done and this is how it works. You're not trying to solve all the problems as a leader because the world is so complex now that we have no hope as leaders of trying to know or understand or anticipate it all. So we need to be able to um, almost uh, dele delegate or kind of diffuse that responsibility so everyone has skin in the game. Um, in terms of anticipating and volunteering ideas and solutions and actions. But we also um, we also let people in, right? So we give people that sense of belonging and we say, look, let's, let's talk about what success actually looks like. So we are still having conversations about outcomes. Make no mistake, we're still having conversations about what does performance look like? What does performance in our context look like? Whether you're a hospital, a government organisation, um, a commercial organisation, what is success and what a great what are successful outcomes and how do we work back from that when you do that you're still focused on performance but you're reverse engineering it to make sure that it's got a human-centered element to it so you're doing it from the perspective of okay how do we work with humans to give humans the best tools resources and access that they can they can possibly receive from us as leaders so that they can be successful without all the stress and friction that is normally present in an organization so just by asking those questions you're telegraphing that, that you trust people and you're inviting them in. And then, of course, the next step is how do you handle people's opinions when they when they pipe up and say something that you think is absolutely bonkers? So, and that, that's another that's another point. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> uh, so there are many studies out there. I mean, you mentioned a mm -hmm. lot of my key points. The Industrial Revolution model is applied to knowledge workers. Now, there are mm -hmm. some types of work that you do where you're going to have to work a shift from a certain time to a certain time. That's the nature mm -hmm. of the beast. However, the industrial revolution model gets applied to creatives and mm -hmm. other, uh, and it really is a, turns out to be more about command and control than anything having to do with innovation. Mm -hmm. There have been mm -hmm. studies done, and I cite some of these in my book, where the knowledge worker who goes to an office for some reason has to sit in a cubicle. Don't even get me started. <laughs> um, and uh, out of that eight hours that they spend there, uh, so they have the eight, eight hours with the mandatory hour lunch and two 15-minute breaks that they're entitled mm -hmm. to, the average amount of time per day that is them doing things that are productive for the company, valuable to the company, and returning on the company's investment is two hours and 54 minutes. Most of the rest of it is having meetings about planning meetings 
to discuss organizing meetings to discuss the concerns because mm -hmm. somewhere, somehow, two years ago, somebody sent an email and they CC'd the, the COO before they CC'd the CEO. And that was mm -hmm. just, that literally almost brought the whole organization down. And then there's mm. cubicle drop bys, uh, you know, more meetings, uh, office politics, and a bunch of bullshit, basically. And I mean, I'll just come mm. out and say it. Now, the funny thing is, there are similar studies that show that that same worker working from a home environment, the average amount of productivity that is valuable as a return on the company's investment is a little over four hours. So mm. by sending people home, we got more. Mm. So they can say, oh, yeah, those people work from home. They're basically working half days. Well, better than the quarter days they were doing in the office. <laughs> I mean, that's number one. Exactly. So, now, so, now, so now we look at that. Do they mm -hmm. need to be seated uh, in front of a desk uh, and, and then have you send them Slack messages and then time how long it responds to them over nothing and then hold extraneous meetings just to rope them to their chair? But let's mm -hmm. look at that. Let's look at, say, that customer service representative. Uh, and uh, they need to be available from, let's just say, eight to four, standard shift, mm -hmm. day shift. Mm -hmm. uh, you give them some tasks to do, maybe some reports to do in addition to taking calls. By noon, they've done their secondary tasks, and all they have to do is be available for customer calls and chats as they come in. Well, if mm -hmm. they have their laptop on their VPN and they want to go sit out on the veranda with a cup of coffee or a glass of iced tea or what have you and uh, watch the birds flutter around. As long as they're on it when that call comes in or that chat opens and they deliver good mm -hmm. service, mm -hmm. what the hell does it matter if they're sitting exactly. in their home office? Uh, and what if and what if they want to go walk their dog or whatever? Hey, if they as long as they got that app on their phone and that customer calls comes in, they take that call and they deliver that service. Mm -hmm. What does it really matter? Well, and I think, so you raise a really good point. And um, the, the, what, what keeps people from 100% adopting this idea that, that flexible work is actually a healthier construct for most workers is that leaders, you know, and, and, and I would put myself on this as well, is we've all gotten quite comfortable and quite used to how we do things. And humans are very much, um, so, so we're designed for both safety and security, but also energy conservation. So we'll always take the path of least resistance. We'll always go for what we know. We'll, wherever we can to conserve energy, we'll drop back into habit. And that's what leaders are doing right now in terms of saying, actually, well, sorry, my, I, 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 should back the, I should back up a bit and say, my concern is that a lot of this asking people to come back into the office, unless they have a very compliance-based role or their, their role means that they are not mm -hmm. allowed to take uh, confidential information home with them, then th that's a different conversation. And I absolutely understand that. But if we're looking at the vast majority of employees out there, one of the things that 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 we have, leaders haven't really kind of switched is their mindset around what they're used to and the discomfort that comes from that they're not visible and therefore I don't know what they're doing. I don't know what they're delivering. I don't know how they're traveling, whether or not they need support or not. So the problem becomes the leader's discomfort with having the, the team working remotely, not the team necessarily being less productive or, or you know, not knowing what they're up to because there are systems to manage for all of that and there is leadership behaviour that can be adapted to manage for all of that. And the reality, as, as you say, is we're paying people for the value that they add 
um, not necessarily the time that they're working. So if we're talking about knowledge economy, it's not about bums on seats for a particular period of time. It's about the value that they are adding to the organisation. So when you've got that customer service person answering the call, we don't want them angry and upset and tense. Uh-huh. We want them to be able to give our clients, our customers, a really great yeah. experience with our organisation, right? So what's the most human way to do that? Figure out how your people need to work well and let mm-hmm. them do that. And, and you'll see your overheads go down, your profit increases, team morale in, improves, uh, learning and adaptability increases. So the, the impacts are myriad. All right. So sometimes on my episodes, I like to make references to Dan Price, the founder of Gravity Payments. And sometimes I actually call, mm-hmm. I accidentally call him Dan Scott. Uh, he's that guy who has gotten a lot of media publicity. He owns a payment, a merchant payment processor or is the CEO of the company or whatever it is. And uh, mm-hmm. he uh, got made uh, news because he raised the minimum annual salary for most classes of people who work for his company to, I think it was $70,000 a year Mm -hmm. while dropping Mm -hmm. his own salary to $70,000 a year. Now I've had Mm -hmm. guests on my show tell me that uh, that was all part of a scheme to defraud his investors. I've also been told that uh, he uh, had a, uh, like a near death experience. And I say, you know what? It doesn't really freaking matter. The fact is he did Mm -hmm. it. So Mm -hmm. um, they call him a, of uh, a uh, uh, you know, bleeding heart, left wing, tree hugging socialist. I call him a capitalist, and here's why: because he recognized <laughs> yeah. something very simple, and his retention and turnover numbers reflect this. this mm-hmm. It's real simple. Yeah. If you give mm-hmm. people psychological safety, which means they're earning seventy thousand dollars a year, you know what they're not doing during that two hours and fifty four minutes at the office? They're not agonizing over how the hell they're going to pay the damn rent. Mm-hmm. They're not worried about. They're not worried about uh, Teresa Junior's college education. They're not worried about. Uh, oh, my car's making a noise. Am I going to be able to get it fixed before I have to get an engine rebuilt, or am I just screwed and I'm going to lose my job? My mm-hmm. mom's sick. Exactly. I need medication. I need food. Mm-hmm. You're not worrying. You're not worrying about that. You're more productive to the office. And he brings up another point. Uh, that ties into this whole thing. And then I have some specific questions for you here. Mm-hmm. In a tweet that he released about a year ago, he pointed out that the average worker as of July 7, 2021, spends 55.2 minutes commuting to and from work, which was up 10% from 2006, you know, urban sprawl, congestion, et cetera. The typical mm-hmm. worker makes $20.17 an hour. But then you add in the commuting time and spread that out adding the commuting time to what you call their time at the office. And that drops to $18 and nine cents an hour. So if people were actually getting paid for the commute time, actually getting paid for their commute time, because that is time they're devoting to work. Sure. They would make an extra $4,800 a year. And I used Mm. to travel long distances to and from where I worked. And I remember actually getting in trouble because I, dialed in from home when I got caught at my house during a freak blizzard that nobody had predicted. And this was all because some, some jerk in the, in the C-suite wanted to show off his big ass title. Um, not that I'm bitter or anything, uh, but anyway, no, but anyway, but, well. but anyway, I share that <laughs> because I want people to understand that when you make them feel psychologically unsafe, they're going to remember that 
20 years ago when they're 20 years later when they're hosting their own podcast you're hoping and <laughs> you're hoping that, and you're hoping that they don't say your name on this episode and this happens to be the <laughs> one that finally blows up their numbers and puts them on the damn map uh, but here's the thing here, okay. let, me ask, let me ask you another question uh, i don't know if you've ever had long commutes uh, to and from the office but i can tell you that when i've had to deal with them there were times i got to the office i was already homicidal and i'm mm. supposed and i'm supposed to uh, have a feeling of kumbaya and a spirit of service. Mm, yeah, you, 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 there is so much in there, Adam, um, that I want to unpack with you. And one, and I'm going to be careful here not to slip into coaching mode. Um, so Go ahead. Another conversation Go ahead. For sure. You're allowed. You're so, allowed. So, <laughs> so what I was going to say is a couple of things. One is, you know, going back to Dan, it, you know, that we have a real issue in this world where a car, a car park in a city can earn more than a human being who's giving eight hours of their time to their employer. So, um, and I'm really tempted whenever I hear comment, like whenever I see or hear comments um, that are takedowns of people who are making moves like he does, um, my first question is always, where is your concern coming from? Where is your fear coming from? Because often it links back to this command and control mindset. So if, if I can't control it, then it's out of my control. So it's either, you know, it's a zero sum game of things have to be controlled, otherwise they become chaotic. And I think what we're missing there is that we already live in a, quite a chaotic kind of a world. And yeah. so if we're, if we're still trying to control things, then we're causing ourselves an extreme amount of stress that's completely unnecessary. And we're causing a lot of stress to the people who we are leading as well um, and making their lives a lot less comfortable than, than it could be. And, and I get that, you know, there are some people who are going to be listening who say it's not my job as a manager to, or a leader to make my team feel comfortable. Well, here's the thing. If your team aren't comfortable, if they are stressed, then they're going to be focusing on their safety and survival first and foremost, not on adding value or doing their role well. So to your point around, you know, if you get stressed on your commute to work, you're not on a service mindset by the time you arrive um whereas if you are working from home and you get to spend the morning dropping the kids at school or you take the dog for a walk and then you jump on the phone and you're feeling really good because you've got fresh air you've got exercise you spent time with people you love then that's looking after your head and heart health your physical health and you are going to give more back to the organization so leaders always have to think about you know what what am i fighting what am i trying to protect because we are always, as human beings, either in a state of, uh, like we, we really only have two modes of operating, right? Connect or protect. Connect is when we're kind of plugged into the world, plugged into the people around us and really participating. And protect is when we are, like we pull the plug and we we hunker down and we batten the hatches and we're just looking after ourselves. So when we're in command and control, the response from people is self-preservation and protection. They go into protect mode. Yeah. Right. And what we really, what we need to appreciate about the last few years is that the world has been through this massive traumatic experience where families haven't been able to be together, you know, for, for, for celebrations or, um, you know, losses and condolences. So there's been a lot of stuff going on over the last few years, which also unfortunately triggers a lot of other past trauma in people. So it brings it all back to the surface. So you feel like you're reliving it, which has big implications for psychological safety as well. But but what we need to really consider is that um, when we think about this connect protect mode and, and, and you overlay the pandemic experience with that, people are thrown into the space of wanting to make sure that they're able to survive. And, 
if you you probably know about Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? From way back in the mid forties. Yeah. But that states that, like, you know, when, you, when we're talking about the stuff that um, that organisations are really looking for, so you know, uh, participating, achievement, um, social relationships, all that kind of good stuff at work, those are high level or those are high level needs that we don't even consider until our basic needs for safety and security and survival are met. So if you've got people on your team who are thinking about someone who's sick, whose who's healthcare they can't afford to pay for or contribute to, if you're, if you're forcing people to come to the office when actually they've got kids who, have, who are sick and need to be homeschooled or caregiving you know, responsibilities or, uh, or the commute has become untenable because the cost of gas has got, whatever the case may be, if you're thinking about what you need versus uh, what your team need to deliver in order to add value to the organisation, then your thinking needs to switch to be able to actually remove the unnecessary friction from the organization because all you're doing is reminding someone that they've got to look after themselves because you're not going to help you're not going to, you're not going to partner them on that you know you're right. about command and control you're not about performance partnership so when i talk to leaders i say to them you know bear in mind that humans have two operation modes connect and protect and as a leader your job is to recognize when they're in protect mode, you know, that whole kind of pulling back, going quiet, staying silent, not speaking up, kind of resisting things and start to coax them back into connect mode. Because when you do that, you're able to then show them and prove to them and demonstrate to them that, you, you know, over and above you saying that you care and, and you, you care about having a high performing team, you're showing them that you care because you're taking a moment to understand what they need to do their job well up against the context of the life that they are living yeah. So where I'd like to go next is, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we've spoken about so many things about what takes away from psychological safety, uh, whether sure. it's uh, whether it's uh, in a business or other relationships. So how can entrepreneurs, business owners, corporate leaders, whoever it is, communicate mm-hmm. to create that psychological safety that's so often lacking? Such a good question. Um, so. The, the first thing that leaders can do is create greater simplicity in how they're working with their team. So literally um, by very very kind of macro thinking, reverse engineering what it is that they need for, the, for their team to be successful. So doing that thinking themselves as leaders and then having a conversation with the team and saying, hey, guys, this, th- these are the targets that we need to achieve as a team over the next 12, 24, 36 months. How do we get there? What's going to make it easy? And, and so involving the team in the conversations so setting absolute clarity around what our expectations are, but having conversations about how we achieve them. Um, and this is part of what the performance partnership uh, relates to. So instead of you having that, the idea that you're going to create everything, set all the frameworks, set everything up for people and, and delegate, purely delegate to people, it's about bringing them into that conversation so that they've got skin in the game and they understand what's coming, you know, what's coming down the line at them. Because... Uh, there are two reasons that's really important. One is because uncertainty creates noise in people's minds. And so, and, and that will, uh, if they can't make sense of it themselves, they'll move into self-protection. So the more clarity you give them, um, the, the less they have to try and figure out for themselves and the more they can use that energy to, to just do the work instead or to ask you great questions that they understand better. So absolute clarity is the first piece. Um, helping them to create frameworks that keep the the measures of 
are we being successful? If we're not being successful, what's going wrong and how do we adapt that? So creating those feedback loops in there as well. Um, that's really important. So that's kind of that's around how do we how do we keep ourselves accountable, not just for the results, but also for the things that aren't working. How do we learn from the things that we're doing that aren't working? So being really candid about what's not working and using that for the incredible learning opportunity that it is rather than treating them like mistakes. Because you're only Mistakes are only a mistake if we don't learn from them. Otherwise, it's a really valuable opportunity to improve going forward. And then the last piece is around really making sure that um, that the team are able to pace their work so, so that they don't have periods where there's a prolonged instance or prolonged periods of, of high stress, high activity, high demand workload. So to the best of your ability as a leader, making sure that you that you think ahead in terms of what are the high peak um, timeframes through our business over the course of a year? Uh, how do we make sure that the team get enough time off across a year to be able to rest and recover whilst still also being fully present for the t- those high peak windows when we need them so that we don't have a few people under uh, unnecessary strain? So those three things, being really clear and specific about what you're going after uh, as the goals, but working with the team about around how they get delivered, um, being really clear about how you hold people accountable to results, but also um, h- how you how you create this kind of really open dialogue around what's not working, so that you can learn from that as well. Because then, then there's nothing to fear. You know, there's, you don't need to be worried about making yeah. mistakes because that's all just that's that's what we know not to do now. Next time, right? So we all learn from each other's mistakes. And the third piece is around making sure that the team are well paced. So. Um, and, and those those things all work in harmony together as well because when you get used to the language of doing this as a leader, because language is part of it. Um, and I'll, for example, it's you know when you say to your team, "I really want you guys to speak up," and then someone speaks up and you say to them, "Oh no, we've done that before and that didn't work." That r- rather than, "Hey, we've tried that before um, and it wasn't very successful." What what do you see that I don't, or what do you? How do you think we can make it successful this time around? So you can still say yeah. it wasn't successful last time, but you're changing the way that you frame the way that you frame that, so that you're trying to understand what their what their viewpoint is around that. But you're also registering, okay, so we weren't successful last time, but what do you see that I don't, or or how do you think we could improve on that, or what what do you think we could be doing differently next time, so so that we do have a better chance of success? Because when you can respond to someone that way, they feel they feel that well, they know that you are listening to them. And you're trying to draw them forward and develop their thinking. You're not trying to shut them down and make them wrong. And even though leaders don't, aren't, you know, and listen, I've done this myself. When a leader does that, they're not necessarily trying to shut people down. They're trying to save time by not repeating yeah. the mistakes, right? But but when you when you draw out the fact that yeah that that didn't work last time, you're saying to people, hey, we've been there. It wasn't successful, so we need to improve. How would we do that? So there's you, a fine line here. Yeah. So. Um, yeah. But let's think, is, let's, right? let's think about the what happens uh, when we're growing up. Uh, you can say that, oh yeah, we we praise our kids when they do well in class. Mm-hmm. But that first time they get a bad grade or they fail a test, it's like it's like when are you finally gonna focus? You're you're, you're never gonna amount mm-hmm. to anything. So mm-hmm. all those all that other good stuff just goes right out the window. Absolutely. Like I like like I like mm. I I could never do advanced mathematics. So I was actually told that I should give up on uh, 
on taking uh, taking advanced placement courses. I should leave the gifted program all to spend more time <laughs> struggling with something I hate. And I was also told that I needed to really think about this because um, I was on the verge of losing any chance to go to college. I'm thinking, what? <laughs> Okay, but this well, is what yeah. happened. This is what happens. We make mm. our we make our school children spend up to ninety five percent. I've seen struggling to pass the stuff that they're not naturally good at, mm-hmm. that they hate, and yet they don't get to spend any time enjoying the subjects that they excel at, are proficient at, and love. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. So you have that, you have that. And now let's go to when a child makes a mistake. Uh, And let's see how many of our audience and you, Teresa, let's see how familiar this may sound to you or somebody you know. Okay, say you're sorry. I'm sorry. And, (laughs) and, and, uh, and what? And say, I'll never do it again. Yeah. Well, well, here's, well, here's a couple things. What if, uh, what if they're not actually sorry? And, how do you know you're not going to do it again? Come on. Well, and those are really good points, right? Because yeah. when we when we use language like that, we're telling people that there is a right and a wrong, that there is a, we're playing a zero-sum game. Yeah. And when you're a leader, what we don't realize as leaders is that when we do that with our team, we're not enabling creativity and, crea- and critical thinking. We're limiting their thinking. We're telling them that there is yes. a right way and a wrong way, and they've got to try and guess which the right way is because it's our way. Right. And part of a leader's yeah. role is to help the team to develop greater competence in the work that they are doing. And you don't do that by telling someone that they're wrong all the time. You yeah. do it by helping them to learn. Because the way adults learn best is through their own insights, not by, you know, we don't learn, we do learn by osmosis, but we learn, um, we learn the really great lessons through our own insights. And we know that when we look back, even, even your memory of, um, you know, of, of having worked for that leader 20 years ago, it's the insight that you have that sits with you, you know, that I'm never going right. to do that. I'm not, I'm never going to be that leader or I'm never going to say those things. And I think anyone who's been a parent knows that we say, we say to ourselves, I'm never going to say that to my kids when I'm a parent. And right. then, hey, next thing we hear our parents' voices coming out of our mouth and we've got to back, you know, backtrack. And I have done that as a parent and I've done that as a leader. I've, and this is another great way to build psychological safety and trust with your team. Um, and this speaks to your point about credibility, right? Integrity. Because if someone's going to apologize, it doesn't mean anything if you don't mean it, if it's not sincere. So credibility and sincerity, integrity is incredibly important. Yeah. For psychological safety and trust. Because we get it as human beings, we are we are wired for, for mistruths, right? Um, so it's really, you know, so every time I have done this, and I still do it with clients now, I'll say to them, hey, let me pause that for a second and walk it back. I did not express that the way that I intended to. And yeah, I and say it, that with my son yeah. as well, right? So right. It, yeah. So be human first and foremost. Be human, and um, and it's you know I think we've got to be when we're talking about um, building competence and capability in teams and in organizations, and you know psychological safety is one of the precursors and an antecedent to team learning, team effectiveness, and team performance. We know all of that. Re- multitude of re- research has, has proven that beyond a shadow of a doubt. Yeah. But to get there, we need to 
we need to create an environment where people feel that they can think and learn and develop. So leaders have to be able to create this kind of, this environment where we're not trying to make everything safe and easy for the team, but we're trying to we're trying to create an environment where people can actually uh, play to their strengths, understand where yeah. their weaknesses could be impacting their own effectiveness at work, their relationships at work, or their well being mm-hmm. at work. Yeah. And help them to close those gaps, right? Because as a leader, those are the watchouts that you're that you're helping your team member to sharpen up around. Because there is no point. Like there, are, there are many things that I'm not not great at. But if it's not relevant to my role, I don't need to be great at them. I, I don't need to be a fish who's really great at riding bicycles. Yeah. I need to be a fish who's really good at swimming. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Let me give you another one to unpack. Um, and, uh, and, and one of the beautiful things about being podcasters is we get to be the voice of our audience. So I <laughs> will willingly share things that were not always my finest hour, always a reflection on the man that I strive to be. Mm-hmm. And the reason I do that is because others may find themselves having been in similar situations or made similar mistakes, what have you, but because they feel inhibited from being able to verbalize it, internalize it, own it they get cut off from the opportunity to grow from it. So I'll sometimes mm-hmm. share mine so that others can say, hey, you know what? Something like that happened to me. Or yeah, that yeah. sounds familiar. And then they can vicariously still get the learning and the growth that will make them more and bring them closer to being the person that they aspire to be. So mm-hmm. when I worked for a company for like four years, um, and it was a you know, I worked in a cube farm. Uh, one afternoon, <laughs> uh, some supervisor from the next department came over and acted disrespectful f- toward me, and then uh, and then turned around and stomped off. Well, this is a Friday afternoon, and the following Monday, uh, I got in trouble because I uh, supposedly gave her the middle finger behind her back. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, um, mm-hmm. first of all, first of all, I made a big deal out of that because I did not give her the middle finger. I gave her the stoccaccio gesture, which is basically the same thing where you put the fist in the elbow and hold up the arm, but you don't extend the finger. Mm-hmm. And I mm-hmm. and I and I gave her that particular gesture on purpose. So first of all, and and, and then they accused me of lying when I denied giving her the fingers. Like I didn't give her the finger. I gave her the stoccaccio gesture because she was a bitch to me. Mm-hmm. I said that, and then. <laughs> And then you know how these things go in corporate America, and yeah. uh, and finally, and finally, I and finally, I, I, I apologized to her. Well, I didn't mean it. Mm. I made it sound sincere, but uh, I may have actually had my fingers literally crossed. It's like I just, I just don't want to do. I just don't want to hear about this yeah. anymore. So, yeah. going back to the whole thing away. of I'm sorry, and I'll never do it again. No, I'm not sorry. Mm. I would do it again. Mm. I, I would probably give her the finger in that situation. Uh, mm. Now, I'm being slightly hyperbolous here, being slightly hyperbolous. But what I want to bring out in that is that why was there so much tension in the workplace that I felt myself driven to give somebody the staccato gesture? Why did they think it was okay to disrespect me in such a way to earn that? Why did I feel that that was an appropriate action within that space? Why did all the other people who worked in those two departments that sat next to each other individually, except for one person, and I'll get to the reason why in a second, all come to me and say, you know, um, I thought that was really cool what you did. And she finally needed to be told, by the way, I wasn't the one Mm. who turned you in. It was so-and-so. Wow. 
lot to unpack there. There, yeah, and I and I and I intentionally was a bit dramatic with that, and a bit um, mm. and a bit sharp with my language because I want this to come across very viscerally D- uh, yeah. for those who have felt themselves in situations they felt disempowered, disrespected, and psychologically unsafe to even mm-hmm. be able to defend their boundaries. Mm-hmm. And that's and that's actually and, what I yeah. felt. I felt my yeah. boundaries were being crossed um, in a very in a very rude way, and then it was even worse that I had the temerity to defend my boundaries. That's how mm. I view it. Mm. And it's and you you may you you touched on something there um, boundaries. So when our boundaries and our values are because often our, often our boundaries are based off of the things that we value the most, right? The, the way that we navigate life and work. And so yeah. There are some things that, you, like all of us, are triggered by the things that re- that cross our boundaries um, dramatically. Like not just a toe over the boundary, but actually like absolutely jumping into the boundary with your boots on. Yeah. Um, so those kinds of things will trigger a much stronger reaction in us than the little slights, you know. But 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 equally, we can kind of slowly boil alive when, when the temperature keeps getting turned up and up and up. We slowly uh-huh. can boil alive as well. So there's different analogies for all of this, but. But the experience that you had, um, I think, will resonate with a lot of listeners because, and resonates with me because I've had similar. I mean, I've had I've had experiences where I've had um, colleagues who have had really bad experiences at work, and I've taken them out for a coffee. So I've removed them from the work environment, taken them to a safe place, given them a coffee, sat down, chatted, you know, just neutralized everything, and gone back yeah. to the to the to the to the office. And, been t- and I was taken aside in that instance and said, you shouldn't really leave the office during the day with people. And I just, exp- I said to them, look, this person was, she was in tears. She was in a really bad way. Uh, I figured rather than just, you know, once I'd seen that she was upset, rather than leave her there and know that that, that everyone else was going to be looking at her when they came back into the office, I made a decision to take her somewhere quiet and, and, and discreet and help her to, to just metabolize and process what was going on for her. So when we came back to the office, she was she was calm, she was grounded, she was okay, she was ready to be back in the office. If that's not something, if if if, if what you value more is someone not leaving the office rather than making sure that people are safe in the office, then that's cool with me. You can have my resignation today. I'd be happy to. I'm, right. I'm happy to tender it uh-huh. because for me, that's a boundary. You I know, know where that. Um, I know where that one comes from. I, I have a guess, but go ahead, finish your thought, and then I'll tell you. Yeah. <laughs> so the thing is, you know, it's when you talk, when you describe the particular example that you gave, there are so many things happening in there. So, and what I want to say is that for people, when people find themselves in that scenario, like there is a question of um, what is my responsibility here as a human being? Like, how do I want to respond in a way that feels like it's true to me? Uh, and that moment for you, it was, I'm going to defend myself, you know, for goodness sake, I, I've got a right to defend myself. But what you're also dealing with there is this culture of, Oh my goodness! You know, we and we talk about each other behind each other's backs, or you know, people are going to dob you in, and the fact that leadership didn't call any of that out. So our culture is often, uh, well, I mean, culture is one of those things that's um, it's quite again another big woolly subject. But our cultures are created by the behaviours that we allow to be reinforced, right? So your work culture is is, it becomes whatever you do most uh, and most frequently, and so. Even if you had turned around and been, 
you know, the, the most angelic version of yourself, you're still, you're, you're having to expend an incredible amount of energy to be that version of yourself when you're operating in that kind of environment with those kinds of people and that kind of behavior around you. Yeah. Oh, oh and, there, and oh, there was no attempt to address the tension that led up to any no. of that whatsoever. All, all it was about is, do you see the sort chart? Do you see how she's above you? How dare you? Right. There was no, there was, yeah. no, there was that, that, and then, and then I'm aware they had at least six management meetings about the incident. Why? Because no, I, why? Because okay. I did, why? Because I made a gesture at somebody. It took three seconds to do. Wow, that organization must be afraid of something. And what I learned about, yeah. and what I learned in, uh, in, in that time about how things actually work there made me think, wait a minute, this is a company that says they get it right when it comes to employee relations. Uh, we went straight yeah. from that to, do they have employee relations as an open-ended question? Because I didn't know at that point. And that's, yeah, and that's that's a really good point because there are so many organizations that talk about trust and respect as yeah. their values. And there's a huge difference between your lived values and your aspirational values or your stated values. Yeah. And your, your example there, so is an example of people who think that they're doing something, but if they have to tell you they're doing it, chances are they're not. If you're not experiencing yeah. it, it's not happening, right? It's not your truth. Uh-huh. Um, and bingo, the bingo. Is. There's no such thing as the truth. We all have our own truths based on our truth. own exactly. experiences. Do, there right? are facts. Um, there are facts yeah, exactly. scientifically and otherwise proven, but we can all view those facts differently. Exactly. And, yeah. and the one thing, there are a couple of things that I wanted to kind of to, to, to come back to in your example. Um, the fact that they are having... Um, conversations six meetings about that particular incident there is something deeper so so I'd, I'm always tempted to say to people and even in my private life when someone's really angry about something that seems really strange I'll say to them what's the real problem but what's the pro- but what's behind that you know what is what's really bothering you because often it's not what just happened it's something much further back or much uh-huh. more central to those to that person's boundaries or that person's values but it's never about the actual thing that that they've just gotten upset about. It is never about that. So sometimes what can be really helpful in that moment, if if people find themselves in that moment, is to take a deep breath, realize that someone always, when someone is responding from a place of anger, it's because they're they're in fear. They're experiencing fear. So the question is, Uh what are they scared of? What's what's crossing their boundaries? What's threatening their values? What right. is it that, that's on their mind? Because you cannot solve a problem if you can't see it clearly. And the only way to see it clearly is to understand what boundary is being crossed, what value is being right. um, compromised. And when you know that, then you can actually respond. But yeah. the problem is we all end up so heightened in our work environments that when someone nuts off at us, we tend to nut off in response, you know, and that's, and gosh, I really hope that 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 phrase travels well in the states because I'm not sure if it does. But when we yeah, but when I get we, it. I when get we, it. <laughs> yeah, when we react in the moment to someone, that's human nature. If someone's threatened towards us, human nature, our first response is to respond in kind. So it takes energy to yeah, override that's what I did. and be the bigger person. That, that's, that's that's what I did. I mean, I'm I'm looking yeah. at this objectively, looking back at something that happened 22 years ago. That's what I did. I responded in kind. Uh, somebody was publicly yeah. disrespectful to me. I gave it right back. I don't I don't care who it was. And it's but it's exactly right. You do not yeah. care about about um, about lines of authority at that point, or you know, um, I didn't I didn't, I didn't I didn't I didn't care then. I don't care now. 
No, and the, this <laughs> yeah. is the thing, right? We all we all put our pants on one leg at a time, right? Um, and we we're all human beings, and we all deserve dignity and respect. And so, right. And this is the this is one of the biggest um, the biggest points around psychological safety is it changes how we use our energy, uh-huh. because we only have so much energy in a, any day, any given day, right? Yeah. And if we're having to use our energy to override our natural responses and try and show up positively, even though we're in an environment where we feel threatened or unsafe or overworked or unable to speak up, then we don't, we're not leaving ourselves with enough energy to actually do our jobs well. And that's why I say to leaders, one of the best things you can do for performance is focus on creating a high trust, psychologically safe environment. <clears throat> because yeah. then the energy that people turn up with is the energy they get to use on doing the work, yeah. not when on I, protecting themselves right. from other people. Exactly. What I can tell you there, um, it's actually a long story. And we only have a few minutes left. And there's, there's one thing mm-hmm. I wanted to run by you here uh, is that um, I did not feel psychologically safe anywhere near that environment. Uh, so mm-hmm. for me to go into that level of fight or flight, that's why I, that's why I just made the, moment, the, the, the statement a moment ago. I didn't care then and I don't care now. If I feel mm. uh, psychologically unsafe, I'm going to defend what I need to. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If that if that rubs a few people the wrong way, um, well, then I guess we'll just have to mop that up later. Now, won't we? You know, you know, you know, you know, you know how sometimes they say it doesn't matter what they're saying as long as they're talking about you, and then it's up to you to craft that to gain the results you want. Mm-hmm. Well. <laughs> Yeah, there you go. There you go. So <laughs> let me go to let me go to something that uh, brought up. I mean, and again, again, um, I don't think that what I did was necessarily proper or right. Or and I'm not giving myself a pat on the back or bragging about. It. I'm just using it as a you know using you know, me being a podcaster. I am your voice. I articulate the things mm-hmm. that may have happened to a lot of other people or other people mm-hmm. done because everybody's had their less than finest hour. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's happened to almost everybody, uh, but, uh, but, but I'm looking at it not from a place of trying to justify it, but I'm looking at it from an analytical standpoint of what can we gain from this and allowing myself to have the visceral reactions that I had at the time and may still even be somewhat latent there allows us to explore further and say, why is that? What is leading you to have that reaction? What is leading you to feel that way? And then you can start asking mm. the five whys and you can start peeling back the onion and you can find mm. out what I think might have been going on with people having objections to you taking employees who were literally in tears out of the work environment to get them a cup of coffee to get them reset and recentered. Um, mm. I can think of a lot of kids who have gone through the thing where they wake up and they're getting ready for school and their parents decide to yell and scream at them over, over nothing. And then when mm-hmm. they see that their kids are about to bust in tears as they go catch the bus or they're dropping them off at the drop-off, what have you, they'll say, and don't let me hear you were crying and don't embarrass me. Mm. So where I'm going with that is what? You have these grown adults there having emotional reactions. How embarrassing. Yeah. What would their spouse say? What would their kids say? What what, what yeah. do I what do I say that I have to employ these people? They they they're, they're crying. Give me a break. Oh yeah, that helps. That creates psychological it's, safety, and that's where I suspected. As soon as you said that, that's what I thought mm, of. Yeah, it's 
Well, you know, we forget that we are not, you know, back, back to the comment earlier around we're not in an industrial revolution anymore. We're, we're now in this knowledge revolution, this knowledge yeah. economy. We have to use, we're trying to use our brains to create value and to create difference, right? Yes. If people are, you know, um, if people's minds are caught up in emotional reactions and look, emotions aren't the problem. It's how, it's how we treat them that's the problem because, you know, I say to people, actually, you, you want your team to be emotional because that's where passion and energy and ideas and excitement comes from. So you can't choose when you do and don't want people to be emotional. They're humans. You can't, you can't boundary that kind of thing. But what you can do is say, you know, if, if someone's having, if, if someone's feeling really ramped up or if you're feeling really ramped up, take a moment to figure out what's behind that. Because if you don't understand what's behind it, you can't effectively solve the problem. All you're doing is making everyone else, you're drawing everyone else into it. You're acting like a whirlpool that's sucking everyone else into that experience. Yeah. And that's, it's, it's, it's mentally unhealthy. You know, psychologically, it's, it's, it's intellectually and it's emotionally and it's physically unhealthy to do that. Um, but it does take, it takes some practice, but, and certainly, you know, back to your, you made a comment, a comment about kind of asking five, asking why five times to understand what's happening for someone beneath it. There'll be times when you don't want to, there'll be times when you feel like it's not your responsibility. And certainly, you know, there's ways to do it in a psychologically safe manner and, and ways not to do it. So you don't, yeah. you, you should never call people out in front of others um, unless you're doing it in a way that's, that's acknowledging and valuing the contribution first and foremost, before you then ask questions to go deeper. But when people are really upset, the best thing you can do is remove them from the context so that they've got one less thing to stimulate, uh, you know, and, and ramp up that that upset, um, but take exactly. them to, you know, a neutral space and, and just understand it better. Um, but the best thing that leaders can do and the best things that we can do for ourselves is whether we're a leader, whether we're thinking about ourselves with, or whether we're thinking about our kids is to is to take a deep breath and not, fall, not, not meet them where they're at by falling into that noise you know, that, that, that emotional noise that they're in, but take a deep breath and find a quiet place to understand what's actually, what's, what's generating it all so that we can fix that piece. Wow. And, you know, I can't believe an hour has gone by already. We have to wrap this up, unfortunately, but we may have to have you some back in maybe six months or so for a round <laughs> two on this. There's so much more to unpack here. What I want our listeners to do is Visit Teresa's website right now. It's if you go to www.oro, that's O-R-O, collective.space. That's www.oro, collective.space. When you get there, uh, you're going to find under courses the Performance Partnership Playbook. This is something, this is the opportunity that uh, Teresa wants to invite you to. So you uh, will have the opportunity to get a little discount off of that because you listen to our show. And you also see a number of other resources uh, that are free and complimentary. Uh, you got some free starters. Uh, you've got a free chapter of the Currency Connection. There's a lot of stuff here to mm -hmm. unpack. So again, visit that website and check it out. And with that, Teresa Mitrovic, thank you so much for being with us today. It's been an honor and believe me, believe me in education. <laughs> thank you so much for having me, Adam. It's been a wonderful way to start my day. We trust you enjoyed today's episode of the Business Creators Radio Show. Check out our previous and upcoming episodes on our website at www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com. While you're there, be sure to subscribe via your favorite network so you get fresh episodes delivered straight to you. Until next time, have a great day. Take care.